My name is Deborah Nord, and I teach in the English department here. And um, it is a great pleasure for me to introduce to you this evening my colleague and my good friend, Maria de Batista, professor of English and comparative literature, and scholar primarily, though not exclusively, as you will see, of 20th century British and American fiction. Professor de Batista is quite simply one of Princeton's treasures and her contributions to the university community over the last 30 years have been rich, abundant, and varied. She came to Princeton in 1974 after getting her BA at Stanford and her PhD at Yale. In addition to teaching in the English department and in the Department of Comparative Literature, she's been involved in the program in the study of women and gender since its inception 20 years ago, and also on the Film Studies Committee, of which she is now chair. In 1994, she was awarded the President's Distinguished Teaching Award, and in 1999, she was honored with the coveted Howard T. Berman Award for Distinguished Achievement in the Humanities. For the last five years, I think it's five, she has served as master of Rockefeller College, one of the undergraduate residential colleges here at Princeton. And currently, she is the host of an interview program on the Public Access Channel, we believe it's Channel 30, called Writer's Community. So she's not only a great author and a great talker, but a great questioner as well. As her Princeton activities and achievements suggest, Professor de Batista combines high literary seriousness and eloquence with great warmth, a sense of the comic, and an unfailing human touch. I think her scholarship can be said to reflect the same combination of qualities. Her first book, was Virginia Woolf's major novels, The Fables of Anon, published in 1980, in which, among other things, she places Woolf's fiction within a fundamentally comic tradition of Stern, Austen, and Dickens, tracing Woolf's literary ancestry back through them and ultimately to Shakespeare. In her second book, First Love, The Affections of Modern Fiction, published in 1991, she writes about Hardy, Lawrence, Joyce, Beckett, and others, offering us a brilliant and sweeping interpretation of modernism that centers on the paradigmatic experience of first love. It is both the power of newness and self-creation and the regret of always coming after, of not being first or original, that gives form to the creations of modernity. In her most recent book, Fast Talking Dames, published in 2001, Professor de Batista turns to the movies some people say film, I think in this case we should say movies, to screwball comedies of the 1930s and 40s in a spirited and wholly original look at American speech, sexual politics, and the joys of female garrulousness and wit. Professor de Batista is also the editor of a volume of, on modernism, which is called High and Low Moderns, a title that also speaks, I think, to her own ability to take pleasure and find brilliance in both high and low forms of cultural expression, in the modernist fictions of Joyce and Wolfe, and in the comedies of Capra, Hawks, and Lubitsch. Professor de Batista is herself, as many must have said, a fast-talking dame, and I have taught with her, so I know. <laughs> so therefore, you are in for a treat, as this great author talks about the great author, James Joyce.
I'd like to thank Deborah. I didn't know that she um, had been asked to introduce me, um, and it was really uh, with great pleasure that I found out that, that she did. But in her introduction, I want you to know that she speaks um, as a treasured uh, colleague and friend, but it is as a friend. Um, so I hope she didn't raise your expectations um, too, uh, too high. I also should say I'd, um, a word of, let's say, uh, perhaps explanation, a bit of a confession on my part. When I was asked, uh, to take part of this series and speak about my favorite author. I thought perhaps I ought to in duty, and because of my association with the program on women and gender, because my own um, life as a student and teacher and lover of literature really began with Virginia Woolf, and because Virginia Woolf was uh, and still remains, I think, uh, the most sort of formative influence on my writing. I feel a little um, badly that I did not select her. There were reasons for uh, my choice. Uh, first of all, uh, this year, 2004, marks um, the 100th anniversary of Bloomsday, the day which is celebrated in Ulysses. Um, and I think it seemed to me appropriate that there ought to be some acknowledgement on the Princeton campus of that, particularly among uh, the alums. Uh, it's also occurred to me that Ulysses uh, has been selected in those kind of end of the century uh, tabulations that, that often take place as probably, and I would say definitely, the most important book published in the 20th century. Uh, Having said that, I don't want you to think that I'm speaking about Joyce tonight because I am a fickle literary groupie, and now that Virginia Woolf's stock is somehow no longer quite as high as James Joyce, I've decided to sort of jump a ship. I have, a, I have though, another purpose uh, in mind and why I decided to speak about uh, James Joyce. First of all, I suppose it's a, it's a very sort of simple um, idea, uh, going back to that uh, very famous Albie title, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I suspect that nobody is really afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, but I do suspect that a great many of you are uh, greatly intimidated by James Joyce. So I thought I would take this opportunity uh, to show you uh, my James Joyce, the James Joyce who has uh, come to me more and more to me over 30 years of teaching uh, modern literature. And within one final context, um, I believe that I am, uh, through no choice of my, uh, my own, but through kind of a process of accident, uh, the last person um, to speak in this series of favorites. Is that, is that true? Okay, I'm the last person to speak. And I thought this would be the moment uh, to acknowledge, uh, to recognize, to commemorate uh, the fact of authorship itself, to remind you that the word author actually begins or was uh, derived from the Latin root algere for increase. That is, what an author does with his imagination, her words, is in some sense to increase our knowledge of the world, uh, to replenish it, uh, to introduce us to new aspects of reality that we never had uh, thought of before. So it's in this register, uh, it's in, in this vein, it's through this perspective that I'd like to talk about James Joyce, uh, an author of increase, of plenitude, who is always finding new forms, new uh, imaginative guises, and most importantly, new ways to use words to increase our sense, uh, both of the fullness of the world uh, and of our power to act and transform it. Uh, okay, so let's return to that sort of initial image, who's afraid of, of James Joyce. I think it uh, might reassure you that James Joyce was an intimidating figure even in his, his own time. He's a figure, I think, charismatically speaking, of, of literary awe. Uh, as he um, 
even working in, in kind of anonymity, was sort of making his way into uh, the literary circles, particularly of Paris, people began to meet with him uh, at Sylvia Beach's a Shakespeare and Company, began um, excitedly talking about this new work, Ulysses, and then later Finnegan's Wake, and began more and more to create a myth about James Joyce that, like all myths, uh, perhaps exaggerated uh, the, the actual man, but more importantly, like all myths, are rooted in some fundamental fact uh, or uh, uh, reality about his own existence. So the, 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 the idea of James Joyce as a kind of artist who devoted um, his entire energy, uh, in some sense sacrifices family, uh, but certainly never wavered uh, to his dedication to his craft as an author. I think this is something we often forget in the, in the literary celebrity that has since accompanied him. James Joyce, uh, as an author, is an author who had to persist. I'll be reading uh, from uh, the series of, of his work as he developed, but it's very important to note uh, that as he began, there was no sort of kindly reception uh, for this revolutionary modernism uh, that he was, was trying to uh, inaugurate. Dubliners, which was completed in 1904, was actually not published until 1914. He had a series of confrontations with his publishers who would not publish certain stories because of certain words that were then considered absolutely beyond the pale um, for any kind of, of literary uh, publication. Uh, I think it's important to understand that in those days, uh, people were prosecuted not for writing books, but for publishing them. So that printers <clears throat> simply sent back uh, works that they didn't understand, often actually didn't read, they mechanically simply assembled the type, but they knew a censored word when they saw it. And because James Joyce refused to give in to all pleas uh, to, I mean, P-L-E-A, Yes, but they did have a lot of pleases <coughs> attending them, to all the pleas to somehow expurgate the word, censor it. What does it matter as long as somehow you get the story out there? He absolutely insisted that what he wrote had to be what was published. Uh, not an easy stance to take when you're penniless, and he often was. Uh, not an easy kind of moral integrity to maintain uh, when you were not sure that your words, however much they cost you uh, in literary and emotional um, pain, uh, might uh, in fact never see the light of day. So what we have here is a figure, I would say, of kind of moral awe. Uh, who maintained um, his integrity as an artist against all odds. And even when uh, he emerged as, in fact, one of the leading lights of modernism and was confronted with, in fact, the prosecution of, of Ulysses, absolutely refused uh, to trade in an ounce of, of his integrity, an ounce of the sense of what an artist did, the role of the artist, not only towards himself but towards his society. I think that this is a... a a moment uh, to celebrate, and it's something I always uh, return to uh, when I'm thinking about what is really important, not just about literature, but about the literary life and the values that they can instill in us. So in some sense, James Joyce uh, emerges onto the literary scene. He certainly bursts into the 20th century uh, as a kind of rebel angel. That's how I would like uh, to think of him. A rebel angel suggesting both uh, the uh, 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 both the, the exalted, that's the word, both the sort of exalted nature of his dedication to art, 
but also his sense that his art was always in some sort of adversarial relation uh, to his society of readers, or certainly to a society of readers who simply wanted uh, to read comforting stories uh, that would reassure them about their place in the world. In other words, to a society of readers who really weren't looking after any authorial increase, but would really like just more and more of the same. Uh, to give you a sense of how committed uh, and how sardonic, uh, and finally how fierce our rebel angel was. Let me read to you from a letter that Joyce wrote to uh, his future, uh, actually future wife, is, the wife is way down in the future. Um, uh, he eloped with Nora Barnacle in 1904, uh, the year in which, in fact, Bloom's, uh, Bloom's, uh, Bloomsday is set. Um, he wrote to Nora Barnacle um, about his own nature because he knew that in eloping with her and refusing to marry her, this was sort of part of his creed as a modern man, as a kind of um, uh, uh, rebel um, against all of the conventions that he had uh, grown up with. He wanted her to know exactly the kind of man uh, that she had, in some sense, entrusted her life to. Uh, they would uh, remain together uh, to the end of his life. He only married her uh, in the very dark days of the, of the 30s when he was really afraid that if he was not married, something might happen uh, to him or his uh, uh, children uh, in the case of a, of a Nazi uh, invasion. But he remained, uh, in fact, it remained a kind of free association, and his children were born uh, illegitimately. But this is how he's explaining himself at the age of 22 in 1904. My mind rejects the whole social order and Christianity, a sweeping um, rejection and repudiation of Western culture, the whole social order and Christianity, home, the recognized virtues, classes of life, and religious doctrines. How could I... How could I like the idea of home? My home was simply a middle-class affair ruined by spendthrift habits which I have inherited. My mother was slowly killed, I think, by my father's ill-treatment, my years by years of troubles, and by my cynical frankness of conduct. My cynical frankness of conduct. It's both cynical, but importantly, it's frank. When I looked on her face as she lay in her coffin, on a face gray and wasted with cancer, I understood that I was looking on the face of a victim and I cursed the system which had made her a victim. We were 17 in family. My brothers and sisters are nothing to me. One brother alone is capable of understanding me. Six years ago, I left the Catholic Church, hating it most fervently, and I cannot enter the social order except as a vagabond." Uh, so out of this whole-scale re uh, rejection of the social order, a rejection that even that letter you can see is really prompted and motivated uh, by the misery that he saw all around him uh, as, a, as a young man, the death of his mother worn out by life uh, more than the cancer that ultimately biologically claimed her, uh, the sense of a family overrun, a spendthrift father who was wasting away his patrimony, his estate, that had nothing actually to give to his son except his spendthrift ways. Uh, all of this sense of dejection, um, of a dispossessed son, uh, seems to uh, be trying to work its way uh, through uh, Joyce's own mind as he sort of takes on not just the family, not just the state or nationality, uh, but it would seem uh, the, the sort of entire sort of human tradition itself. And as he does so, he begins to mark, in fact, uh, the one, I would say, 
predominant characteristic of all modern authors. Certainly it is the characteristic that has defined James Joyce's career, and that is the life of vagabondage, the life of exile, the life of departure, the life of uprootedness, the life of displacement. Uh, it is a, a way of, in some sense, dramatizing the whole-scale dislocation of values that he himself felt necessary in order for his family, uh, for Ireland, for Europe, uh, in fact, for, for the whole sort of human project uh, to, in some sense, be regenerated according to the lights of his own imagination. So here we have this 22-year-old rejecting everything. I suppose we could say that at 22, everyone is potentially a rebel angel. It's sort of part of youth uh, to think that the world can be remade in the images of their desires. The difference is that James Joyce is someone who used his words uh, uh, to sort of back up that vision. And so that there's another letter that I would like to read to you to show you how you move from this cynically frank uh, exilic figure uh, to the literary sort of celebrity and revolutionary uh, that we are in fact honoring uh, tonight and I would say throughout 2004 uh, in honor of Bloomsday. This is to the only brother that he ever felt any sympathy with and that is Stanislaw uh, who in fact he exploited often um, uh, for money to keep his own uh, projects going. And notice how different um, the language is here because you know he's speaking um, to uh, to someone dear to his heart. And so he, he drops into a sort of much more fam familiar and even slangy register. Oh, vague something behind everything, a kind of mock prayer that he's addressing to his brother. For the, Lord, uh, for the love of the Lord Jesus, change my curse of God's state of affairs. Give me for Christ's sakes a pen and an ink bottle and some peace of mind. And then by the crucified Jesus, if I don't sharpen that little pen and dip it into fermented ink and write tiny little sentences about the people who betray me and send me to hell. Now, our rebel angel who says that he is in some sense repudiating the whole social order, Christianity, the family, the home, everything that in some ways has been the locus of value and tradition, all of a sudden in this much more intimate, confessional, I think, open moment with his brother, uh, in some ways reduces the stakes and portrays himself as someone dipping his pen into ink and writing these tiny little sentences about the people who betray me, these tiny little sentences. Actually, if you read James' stories, they are tiny little sentences. Um, they contain very sort of powerful words. But I wanted to introduce this uh, into, your, into your mind so that the figure of the intimidating James Joyce uh, would become a little more, a little more manageable and approachable uh, in your mind. So let's sort of think about these tiny little sentences about those who betrayed them. Uh, the first uh, literary production in which Joyce actually went home, um, installed himself back in his Dublin uh, background, reconnected in a way with his, his tradition, at the same time as remaining critical with it, is of course uh, Dubliners. Uh, completed in 1904, the same year he met uh, Nora, the same year he left Ireland for good. Dubliners, he tells us, was meant to be a portrait really of uh, of modern-day Ireland, and he specifically identified the problem um, of, uh, of his own society at the time as the problem of moral paralysis. Uh, the sense that Ireland, in some sense, had become devitalized, that it didn't know how morally to rehabilitate itself, that it wasn't just a subjugated colonial nation under 
uh, imperial British rule or under the religious thumb of the Catholic Church, uh, but that because of its own um, uh, innate inability to, uh, to respond back, uh, to reject all of the orders, all of the values that had been imposed rather than um, accepted by itself, he decided to write uh, a series of stories, Dubliners, that began in this rather unintimidating uh, way. Um, it's a tiny little sentence, and yet it carries all the force of, uh, I would say, moral horror and moral condemnation. There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke. So that that note of paralysis is, uh, is rung almost immediately. It is a story that takes as its title, Sisters. It's about a paralyzed priest. You begin to see how Joyce insinuates in, in a very kind of realistic, I would say modest way, into the very sort of social, familial, emotional fabric not only of Dublin, but of modernity itself, and begins to show how the nerves have, in fact, become incapacitated. And as he goes through story, through story, through story, uh, you see how in various ways he begins to portray the ways we have kind of seeded the moral energy, the moral imagination uh, that really we might have been born with and which is ours uh, to transform the world. It's only through these tiny little sentences, through these words, very sort of simple words, very common words, very idiomatic words. There's nothing particularly flamboyant now about, about Joyce. He begins in a common, re, uh, realistic, almost sort of reduced literary vocabulary uh, in order to paint uh, this fact, monumental picture of the moral paralysis which is afflicting Dublin. As he moves through uh, the, uh, the, the, how should I say, the gallery of Dubliners that compose uh, the society that he's at once representing and condemning, we, he, he ends up in a story called The Dead. Many of you have yeah, read the story, many of you might see the John Huston um, film of it. What's interesting about The Dead is that all of a sudden we see Joyce at the very moment where, in a way, he's, he's pronouncing a kind of last rites uh, on a Dublin that he has left, on a society that he feels is, if not uh, uh, senescent, at least paralyzed to the point that it may have lost the powers of ever producing an original movement again. Even as he's doing that, he's signaling it to us through the power of his own words, that is, the power of words to increase our capacity to understand and perhaps react um, against uh, a reality that we feel is forbidding and beyond our powers to change. Even as he's doing that, the words themselves are, are containing a kind of energy, seem to be invested in a love for the beauty of language itself, that almost seems to compromise uh, the portrait of sadness, um, of paralysis, um, the obsequies, if you want to put it, that he himself is performing. So it's in this sense that, that Joyce is both performing uh, the last rites and almost in a kind of priestly uh, manner, and at the same time pointing the way uh, to where we might look uh, for a kind of rebirth through language. Do you have that first tape that you can play? Oh. Is it, is it set in here? This is, um, I wanted you to hear not just my, uh, my voice reading uh, Joyce, but this is an Irish voice. It's uh, Frank O'Connor reading the very last uh, sentences of the, of the dead. Generous tears fill Gabriel's eyes. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman. 
but he knew that such a feeling must be love. And in the partial darkness, he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing. Okay. Yeah, let me just before, let me just sort of set this up. For those of you who don't know The Dead It Occurs to Me, it's a, it's a story that begins with falling snow. It's a, it's a festive ce celebration around Christmas time. The lead character is a man named Gabriel. Um, Gabriel, of course, is a messenger angel. Uh, I think it's kind of an important uh, sort of, Joyce was very uh, taken with the symbolic uh, importance of names in forecasting or predicting not only a future, uh, but a nature. So Gabriel's a kind of messenger angel. He is a writer himself uh, who is having difficulty deciding whether he's going to write for the cause of Irish nationalism or whether he's going to, uh, in some sense, uh, just uh, uh, write the kinds of uh, literary, I would say, sort of literary pieces that are more to his own imagination. But the story really isn't about the formation of the artist. The, the story is about what Gabriel has missed uh, in, his, in his own uh, development. He's missed the fact that his wife, Greta, has actually had a, a former love who literally died, it seems, um, uh, for, for love of her. So that the, the, the story begins with falling snow and incidents uh, and, and little anecdotes accumulate in the course of the evening until uh, Gabriel begins uh, to understand that his wife is actually sort of affected by this memory of her first of her form, her love, and sees her for the first time, not just as another person, but perhaps, uh, let's say, uh, an object that really has eluded all of his imagination. So it's a moment of a failure. It's a marital failure, but most important, imaginative failure. And as the uh, as the story sort of winds down and as he watches his wife remembering her love, uh, falling asleep, crying softly, there's a, there's a kind of upsurge both of pity for her and perhaps pity for him who is sort of caught in this emotionally incapacitated, uh, paralyzed realm of Ireland. So these are the last, these are the last words and these generous tears, um, I think again are these this ambivalent signal, the way words always are, uh, in some sense, doubly charged in joys, these generous tears that are, are shed for himself, but the fact that they are also including uh, Greta in, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in, their, in their feeling, uh, suggests that even as he's closing down, something else is opening up. Under a dripping tree, other forms were near, his soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a gray, impalpable world, the solid world itself which these dead had one time reared and lived in was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window it had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. 
It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Uh, that's an Irish voice, not just in uh, the pronunciation, but in the almost irresistible urge that Frank O'Connor has sort of to turn this into a high oratorical mode. You could, you could see he can't, he can't wait to get around those words. And yet, what, what are the, what the words actually saying? We know that Michael Fury, that, that again, that, that's such a suggestive name, Michael Fury, that, that passion, that commitment, that energy, that not just sexual, but that moral energy, that imaginative energy, is in some sense not been able to survive uh, Ireland, the hell of it that made for him and for obviously by <coughs> extension, Joyce himself. Yet even as the snow is falling, falling, as Gabriel himself feels his soul fading into impalpability, when we recognize that snow is general all over Ireland, there's something about that description that begins to sort of swell with another kind of possibility, the possibility of language creating its own counter-response. Perhaps it's just the possibility of language writing down the very forms of betrayal or of incapacity or of, of paralysis, which in themselves is a response, and a necessary but an adequate and effective response against it. So that even though the dead concludes with the snow falling on all the living and the dead, that moment of sort of quiet, those last rites as, as I call them, uh, the, the indication uh, sort of all around that nothing is really going to re-germinate uh, out of this landscape. We're in a churchyard and all we have to contemplate are the headstones of all the those who have passed before us. We might think, where could Joyce go from here? He sort of performed his last rites. He's left Ireland. Uh, these little sentences have now accumulated into a kind of mass burial stone uh, in which he would turn his, his back forever on his native land. But that didn't happen. Um, the snow gently falling. This is a moment in a, in a career. It's a kind of necessary interment of whatever negative, whatever uh, dejected emotions that Joyce might feel towards his own countrymen. It's part of the rebel angel outgrowing the initial icon iconoclasm of his own responses. For if you move, um, to the next work, or the next narrative work, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, what you're surprised at is all of a sudden um, the, the lightness, the energy, the exuberance, as if language has not died at all, but in some ways has been reborn and sort of found a new way uh, to caper um, among uh, human beings. So this is the beginning of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Joyce returning um, uh, to to Ireland, more importantly, returning to himself and making himself an object of, of investigation. It's almost to say, can an artist be a hero? And if an artist is a hero, what kind of heroic uh, activity can we expect of them? Well, let's see what uh, Joyce uh, offers us. Portrait of the Artist as Young Man begins, once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road, and this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Taku. Again, 
very little sentences, nothing intimidated about that diction. He retranslates us back into the first experience we all have of words, of the fairy tale. The first form of narrative itself, arguably, um, might be said. Once upon a time. So in going back uh, uh, to himself, to his own childhood, actually almost to his infancy, what he's doing is sort of charting the course so that he might sort of reclaim uh, the very grounds of language itself. Once upon a time, in a nice and little time it was. I think this is a very sort of important discovery as you read uh, a portrait of the artist as a young man. The idea that identity of the artist is something that is formed over time, that it evolves, that it has its phases, that in some sense there might be a central nature. In this case, the protagonist is called Stephen Dedalus, and he takes his name Stephen, meaning crown bearer, and Dedalus. Uh, obviously from the creator of the labyrinths uh, as the artificer. He understands that this is a potential within him, but he's also signaling us to a portrait of the artist as a young man as the novel progresses, that as consciousness evolves, it needs to increase its range of words. It needs to increase its sense of how the, word, the world itself appears and how the world itself uh, must be represented in increasingly sort of complex sensations and, and sort of literary language. Why I say this is important, if, if you think about the other major creator diagnostician of modern identity, and I would say that would be Joseph Conrad, who's given us the sense of, of identity as a double or a split identity, as the journey of human life as a kind of movement into the heart of darkness, where someone like Marlowe confronts his alter ego, uh, Kurtz. This idea that we all have a heart of darkness within us, this seems to me to present not only a, a vision of identity which is double, which is conflicted, but also a vision of identity which is uh, inalterably drastic. What Joyce donates to the modern understanding of subjectivity, of consciousness, is that in fact we all are undergoing change and that our change is both registered through words and in some sense provoked by the kinds of words that we hear uh, as we are, are growing up. What, again, um, is significant about this discovery and using his own literary language to advance it is it offers the opportunity to distinguish between the kinds of models that are imposed upon us. That is, when you're growing up and someone says, oh, that's a Nysons little boy, we all know what that means. It's not just that you're saying it's a Nysons little boy. You're actually implanting in the little child's mind that if you want to remain a Nysons little boy, if you want to be a Nysons little boy, this is how you're going to behave. Okay? Uh, this, uh, this is part of the sort of coercive uh, aspect of language. And as we follow Stephen Dedalus throughout the novel, we begin to see his understanding that language and the kinds of realities, the kinds of roles, the kind of functions that language represents to him are for him to choose. So that his problem as a young man, as, a, as an artist uh, in, in the making, is to decide whether he's going to accept the models that have been suggested to him, to be imposed upon him. Is he going to be a Nysons little boy? No, he's not going to be a Nysons little boy. He's going to be a rebel angel. He's going to reject everything. He's not going uh, to pray for his mother when she actually asks him to pray for him. I think that that's um, uh, one of the ways in which Joyce really separates his notion of moral integrity from all of the conventional notions of niceness that we ourselves, I think, uh, uh, 
use in our own probably daily life and, and, and relations to other people, but certainly I think that we take as we enter into the portrait of the artist as a young man. So as he goes along, he begins systematically to reject those models that are imposed upon him. And at one point, he actually um, identifies uh, what they are. Um, uh, he says to one of his friends, uh, Davin, who is encouraging him in a way uh, to, uh, become, uh, to become an artist in the Irish, not only in the Irish tradition, but in the Irish cause. Speak for Ireland. Don't speak for yourself. Speak for Ireland. Uh, this is where the true significance of your words and of your, um, of your uh, vocation actually lie. Not only speak for Ireland, but speak in Irish. Speak Gaelic. Uh, this was an extremely important um, way in which artists could show that they were nice, that they were in some sense in conformity, in consensus, in solidarity uh, with their own uh, countrymen. And this is Stephen's uh, re response to him. My ancestors threw off their language and took another, Stephen said. They allowed a handful of foreigners to subject them. Do you fancy I'm going to pay in my own life and person debts they made? What? Okay, there is the frankness, there is the cynicism, there is the repudiation of everything um, that the good Irish artist has been taught at this point in history uh, that he ought to um, be thinking about, that he ought to be writing about. And then he follows up in a very important way with his own idea about the artistic identity and of the kind of life course that that identity must pursue if in fact the work of art is to emerge at the end. The soul is born, he said vaguely, first in those moments I told of you. It has a slow and dark birth, more mysterious than the birth of the body. When the soul of man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. So here is the vagabond now justifying his vagabondage, his exile, saying that when the soul is born, it is born in a country which is imposing more and more sort of constrictions, uh, giving more and more, in some sense, incapacitating, paralyzing models uh, for the artist, in some sense, to work with. And he simply refuses. He refuses uh, the net of nationality language, religion. He is not going to, to write as an Irishman, although he will really never depart from Ireland as a subject matter, but he will not write as a nationalist. Politics, ideology uh, are, are something um, that in his, in his own way he, he will go on to repudiate. Language, it will be his own language. It will not be Gaelic. It will not even be uh, the, the, the language of the marketplace. It will not be the language of fiction which somehow is complacent. It will be a, a language that provokes, that upsets, that contains words that are often considered obscene. And of course, religion itself. Born in a Catholic country, what Joyce does as a rebel angel is finally fly by uh, the nets of religion by becoming, in his own words, a kind of spoiled priest of the imagination. That is, performing his rites not in the realm of liturgy, not in the realm of religion, but in the realm of art itself. So at the end of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, you, you begin to see how Joyce commits himself to this project of being the solitary, vagabond, exiled, uh, rebel artist who in who nevertheless is going to be precisely the savior, both the 
savior of morals, uh, both a savior in politics, but finally I would say both a savior in terms of, of our understanding of human life itself that Ireland uh, and the world itself um, uh, has been waiting for. This is the last entry, a diary mode, in which the portrait of the artist as a young man concludes. 26th April. Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order, uh, always reminding us that, that Joyce, even though he comes from a middle-class family, was a middle-class family that had fallen. Uh, everything that comes to him comes to him second-hand. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. What the heart is and what it feels. Amen. Okay, an amen taken uh, from the realm of religious language, but now applied to his own um, quest for what the heart is and what it feels. So be it. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. There is the artist who now has sort of taken on the mantle of the national priest, uh, the moral priest, someone who is going to be the conscience of his age, even though he's completely divorced from any social, uh, any social or religious institution. And notice too, however, how Joyce's words um, increase our sense both of the hope in this project, but also in some sense of how it's repeating something that has gone on and on and on. It inserts Stephen himself into a tradition. He's going for the millionth time, as all artists do. The increase is inexhaustible once you undertake that project. And one other irony I'd like to point out to you, and this is how the meanings of Joyce's language is always in some sense proliferating, multiplying, always in some sense outpacing our ability to catch up with him. When he forges in the smithy of my soul, what kind of language is that to be using in a modern novel? He has been realistic. He's told us about Dublin, smithy in my soul, this is not a, a particularly contemporary image for the soul. It's deliberately antiquated, as if to say, I'm going to open up the whole realm of language and connect you through the idioms of everyday life that I am using to the language of the past, because in some sense, that is how we get to know the human heart and what it is. And as he finishes his 27th April, my own sister's birthday, old father, old artificer, young, in some sense, paying its homage uh, to, not just to the old, but in fact to the tradition out of which he himself will come. O Father, O Artificer, stand me now and ever in good stead. Dublin, 1904, Trieste, 1914. Dublin, 1904, when he finished, Trieste, 1914, where he could actually say, now, um, no, it's, uh, now it's done, now it's published. It's very interesting because both Dubliners and Portrait uh, in some sense were, were really sort of published, finally got published almost within, you know, within a year of each other. Um, stand me now, and uh, Father, stand me now and forever in, in good stead. He's ready for uh, the moment where he can emerge as the artist who will replace the priest as the creator, as the maintainer, uh, as the interpreter of the conscience of his race. And the result, of course, is Ulysses, um, this great monumental, and don't worry, I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not going to give you a whole other lecture on Ulysses, but I want to show about how Joyce himself continues on this authorial path of increase 
ever widening, ever expanding the bounds of literary language, uh, dilating, as it were, the compass of what words themselves can bring uh, in uh, interview for us to look at, to ponder over, to meditate, and if we're really reading closely, to have our own conscience uh, not only awakened, but transformed. Just want to read you um, the very um, famous opening of, of Ulysses and sort of suggest how Joyce is moving from that last moment where he's discovered, remember he's moved from once upon a time there was a Nysons little boy to a very sort of complicated language which involves the language of everyday Dublin, the secondhand clothes, the sense of his mother looking after him, a very routine, very common, very ordinary little sentences about these little moments in life that later uh, loom rather large, at the same time shot through with words like soul, like artificer, uh, that seem to orient us to sort of uh, larger questions, always sort of looming in our own self-development. Uh, as he moves um, from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man into the work of his maturity, Ulysses, the mature hero who spends 20 years traveling in so that he can, in fact, do what? Come home again. Uh, the young man of 1904 who said, I have nothing to do with home, writes the greatest epic, I would say the greatest novel, in praise of the value of homecoming um, that has really ever been written. And that novel about home and about homecoming and the values to be found there begins this way. Stately, plump, Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather in which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. Simple implements, simple objects every day, but that stately, it has a kind of epic uh, resonance, doesn't it? It reminds us that we are reading an, uh, uh, an epic. It has the stateliness of form. There's a kind of epic architecture which is always in place. The title tells us that, Ulysses. It is based on the Odyssey. But the plump, the stately plump, suggests maybe the book is going to be too big too stuffed? Will it sort of collapse under its own ambitions, under the weight of all of the little things it wants to note um, as you make your way through this 24-hour day? I mean, we're not even talking about war and peace or the whole sort of era. Uh, we're not talking about that world historical moment. This is one day, June 16th, that uh, in every other respect is an ordinary day. So stately Buck Mulligan comes forward um, he held the bowl aloft and intoned, Entroido ad altari Dei. Those are the words of the Mass, the first words the priest says. So in some sense, what Ulysses is doing is usurping or accommodating or assimilating into its own language, not just the language of literature or high literary style, uh, the stately language of the epic, uh, but is also incorporating the language of ritual, a language which never changes. For ritual language to be effective, it cannot change. A priest cannot begin the Mass in a different way every time, can he? It has to be, in some sense, the language um, of unchanging, immemorial, uh, priestly uh, effectiveness. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called out coarsely, called out coarsely. So we move from high, elevated literary diction to the, you know, ritualistic, liturgical speech into the coarse speech of every day. Come up, Kinch, come up, you fearful Jesuit. Okay. Come up, Kinch, come up, you fearful Jesuit. In really, I would say, five lines, what Joyce has done is exploded the literary language of the novel. 
And in exploding it, he hasn't simply sort of dispersed it to the ends of the universe, so you'll never make any sense of it. What he's done is exploded it so, in fact, the different registers of human speech articulated meaning can make its way into his novel. High literary language, the language of every day, the language of slang, uh, the language of the priesthood, the language of men and women um, as uh, they fitfully make their vagabondage way through the world. So this is the way in which we moved from there was no hope for him this time, these little, little sentences, to a state where we have hope of everything. We have hope of the novel itself, of the capacity of human expression to expand, to accommodate not only its own sort of local speech and traditions, but in fact a, a language that extends beyond it. I don't think it's a mistake that, uh, uh, of course it isn't a mistake, we're talking about James Joyce, it's not a mistake that in translating the story of the Odyssey, taking a Greek, a pagan, a classical hero, and transporting him into, every, into the everyday world um, of modern day Dublin, he took not just an Irishman, but he took uh, a Jew. And part of the way Ulysses expands and explodes and increases our sense of literary language is allied, I think, to his notion that the real human tradition uh, is, in fact, at its, at its uh, not only its best, but at its roots, a multicultural tradition. His hero is a Jew-Greek, just as, in some sense, Joyce is arguing Odysseus was a Greek-Jew. Uh, their versions of each other. And it's this ultimate identification that I think carries the social hope of Ulysses as well. I just wanted to play you, um, in, in concluding, um, the last or the ending of, of Ulysses, a very famous uh, monologue by, uh, uh, by Molly Bloom. Um, and as you're listening to this, um, I want you to maybe recall a couple of things I've been saying about, about increase, um, about, in some sense, simplicity, about the sort of little, the little things, the little sentences, uh, the actual sort of verbal modesty uh, that Joyce often brings uh, to, to his writing. Certainly, um, he brings to the very end of Ulysses, as if part of the Odyssey that is being told in the story of Ulysses is not just the story of a young man, Stephen Dedalus, trying to see if, in fact, he can make his way out of Dublin. It's not just the story of Leopold Bloom, um, a man who throughout the day is vexed by the thought that his wife, Molly Bloom, is having an adulterous affair, and, in fact, at 4 o'clock that day, will, in fact, have an assignation with him. Part of the assignation is what I would call a kind of odyssey of styles, an odyssey of language, so that as we move through the novel, we move from this literary, slang-ridden, ritualistic, theologically obsessed language of men until uh, it really sort of explodes in, in the course of the day. And when I teach Ulysses, I often warn my students, the novel has its moments when the characters feel becalmed and marooned. Um, so it is experiencing the same kind of anxieties that you are experiencing. Will I ever finish? What does this all mean? Okay. <laughs> In the end, of course, the meaning comes down um, to very sort of simple sort of proposition about what the heart is and what it feels. So let's give the last word to Molly Bloom, who purports to speak the language of woman, the language of nature, as if Joyce had to go through the roots 
of theological, literary, slang-written, sardonic, sarcastic, simplified language to get to the, the ultimate language of all, which is the generative, of the generative language of nature itself. So I would say at the end of Ulysses, uh, what we have is the ultimate verbal destination, human destination, moral destination of the novel. It is the language of a woman who, in some sense, is celebrating the procreative powers, the powers of increase, which are installed in nature itself. So as you listen to this, remember, this is a woman who is married to a bloom, and her last thoughts are about flowers, on how she would like the whole world, in some sense, to be blooming with flowers. I love flowers. I, I love, love flowers. hopeless women in roses. God, if heaven does nothing like nature, the wild mountains, then the sea, and the waves rushing. The sun shines for you, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Holt Head, in the grey tweed suit and his straw hat. The day I got him to propose to me. Yes. First, I gave him the bit of seed cake out of my mouth. And it was leap year like now. Yes, 16 years ago. My God, after that long kiss, I nearly lost my breath. Yes. He said, I was a flower of the mountain. Yes. So we are flowers. All of a woman's body. Yes. That was one true thing he said in his life. And the sun shines for you today. Yes, that was why I like him. Because I saw he understood or felt what a woman is. And I knew I could always get round him. And I gave him all the pleasure I could. Leading him on till he asked me to say yes. And I wouldn't answer first. Only looked out over the sea and the sky. I was thinking of so many things he didn't know. Mulvey, Mr Stanhope and father. Remember now her former lovers. And the sailors and the sentry in front of the governor's house. With the thing round his white helmet, poor devil, half roasted. And the Spanish girls laughing in their shawls and their tall combs. So the auctions in the morning, and the Greeks and the Jews and the Arabs expensive. and the devil knows who else from all ends of Europe. Yes. And those handsome moors all in white and turbans like kings asking you to sit down in their little bit of a shop and ronda with the old windows of the posadas, and the wine shops half open at night, and the castanets, and the night we missed the boat at Algeciras, and the watchman going about serene with his lamp, and oh, that awful deep-down torrent, and the sea, the sea, crimson sometimes like fire, and the glorious sunsets, the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens. Yes. And all the queer little streets and the pink and blue and yellow houses and the rose gardens and the jessamine and geraniums and cactuses. And Gibraltar as a girl, where I was a flower of the mountain. Yes. And I put the rose in my hair, like the Andalusian girls used. Shall I wear red? Yes. And how he kissed me. And I thought, ah, as well him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel me breasts all 
perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. So here in that, that last kind of swell, orgasmic swell of affirmation, yes, I will, yes, a kind of rededication to keep increasing our sense of the world, uh, to keep the world somehow sort of flourishing with all kinds of rhetorical flowers of, of roses, to keep the boundaries of consciousness um, open to Jews and Greeks and Moors, a kind of text, I think, uh, for our time. And it's for this reason, this image of plenitude, of replenishment, uh, that I think explains why um, James Joyce is not just my favorite author, but really my idea of what an author is. Thank you very much.